Welcome into another episode of Everything is Logistics, a podcast for the thinkers in freight, hosted by me, Blythe Brumleave. And on this show, we're telling the stories about how your favorite stuff and people make it from point A to B. In today's show, we're doing something new where we pick the best interviews from the industry's thought leaders and create a mashup of these episodes that you can listen over a period of time. That way, if you want a crash course in, say, autonomous trucks or what shippers want out of the 3PL partnership, you can listen to one long-form episode instead of having to dig through our library of, you know, 250-plus episodes at this time of recording. So all of these episodes that you're going to listen to today are from within the last year. So hopefully the insights from these folks will help you map out what your next year looks like. So with all that said, let's get into it. And so when you think about it from that lens, you're you're taking your experience in the supply chain and and working at these different facilities, and then you move it into a logistics company. Are you moving that freight? Are you, are you, what kind of, I guess, logistics are are, are you, are you a broker booking loans? No, no, no. So if you look at like my, the core business of what we do, um, I'm partnered up with a grower packer shipper in California that roughly has 600 acres of California citrus. So no, no brokerage at all going on, at all going on here. So more of a Thorpeel. We are a grower packer shipper. And then what we would do on that side, right, we're salesmen. Well, then when my logistics came in, my brother calls me one day and says, hey, I'm not working for XYZ anymore. I'm not going to tell you the name because you already <laughs> know who they are in this industry. And he goes, I think we should start a logistics brokerage. We can get reefer units. We can get flatbeds. We can do dry, uh, dry units. And then we can also move medical equipment and things like that. It was about a month later. We come out. We start a little company called Decision Logistics. We were putting the decision in your hands, right, of what you wanted to do with your logistics. And yeah, we were a broker in that sense, but we contracted with our friends and our, and our other companies to say, hey, we're going to do this. How can we support you? And then after about two years, uh, we moved on from that location, started a new brand, and then came into more produce. So as a, so, so you knew, I guess, sort of the nuances of shipping produce and, and what you wanted to, I, I, I guess, make sure all of the nuances that, you know, some of these brokers out here, one of the first things that they do, especially during this time of the year, is they're cold calling, they're cold emailing, and they're trying to get all these produce or, or produce companies in order to allow them to ship they're yeah. goods for them. So what are some of the nuances that, that maybe some of the freight brokers out there should be aware of? Stop should- calling. <laughs> stop emailing. You know, it's crazy. So I actually have a logistics sponsor uh, for our podcast. So John Green Logistics Company, they're asset-based, and they've got trucks, they've got trailers, and they brokerage as well. Okay? But there's a very big difference of dealing with them. They're 100% relationship-based. And there's Listen. Trust me, everyone. If you follow me on LinkedIn, I appreciate it. But there's some of you logistics brokers out there that you spam our LinkedIn or you spam our content. That's going to get you thrown right out the bus immediately. No one wants that. With John Green Logistics, it's a no-hassle approach. I say it so openly like that because they handle our freight. I never have to question. I never have problems with billing. The communications from the marketing manager and the sales managers, like I said, it's, it's, it's almost like we're family. Like I said, it's like Olive Garden. When you come, you're family. It's like, you know, but so. But you get the breadsticks and get, also the, the really great salad dressing to go with it. That's and, how I feel at JGLC, you know what I mean? So even myself is, I, I, I get a lot of brokers that reach out all the time because they're like, I know you move product. Let us help you. We could be your one-stop shop. Everyone if you look at my resume, I worked with C.H. Robinson for two and a half years. I, I, I understand how that brokerage model works. 
And again, the authenticity and the relationship is going to be the biggest key in grabbing a produce broker, or I'm sorry, a produce company, uh, because what we're looking at in this is what are you going to do for us to make sure the food gets to the destination in a safe and fast way? We're feeding America here. And I think that that was one of the things that um, I, I was listening to a, a couple of your interviews, and you had mentioned how you want to work with asset providers that have dedicated shipments or have dedicated equipment and have handled produce shipment before yes. because it is so vitally important. What, what, what makes it so vital is because I guess the, the, the time from it leaves the farm to the grocery store, is it that? What are, I guess, some of the nuances great, that you're looking well, for? Well, it's a great question. Look at it like this. You have people that maybe they have reefer units and I've got a lot of independent drivers that I know personally and they say, I'll never haul produce. You guys are so picky. You want pictures of it if it's rejected by the driver, right? Oh, you want to, us to ha scan paperwork through Arizona for agriculture purposes. You don't pay enough for these routes. These are things I hear all the time, which is why they charge us so much money, right? Um, but if you've hauled produce, if you're a company even like JGLC that's been hauling produce for 60 years, uh, they're drivers now. Some of those drivers are second generation drivers at the organization. So one, they know, hey, when we're delivering to Publix, we need to make sure that when we clock in, when we, when we update our people, when if they need pictures, we know to go outside and snap a picture. If you're a broker out there and you're still dealing with a flip phone, which trust me, people are still out there doing that, how can you take a picture of a rotten loader? How can we utilize you? Remember, it's a relationship here. So if I'm gonna hire you as a truck, now you're part of my supply chain. I need to be able to trust every aspect of that supply chain and know you're in it for the food. And that's what's the most important to me. As I've said, it's about growing together and that's part of it. And so when you, you are looking, I guess, maybe you're, you're in your unique situation, you already have that relationship, so you're not actively out there looking for, for other logistics providers, um, but for a lot of, I guess, maybe those trucking companies that haven't found, there's a, a lot of trucking companies that get started every single day, and they're looking to find a niche. Is produce a good niche for them, or should they maybe try their hand at something else first, or is produce, what is the hierarchy of commodity? I love, I love definitely the question. I, I would say... Um, produce is different. I mean, reefer units is different. If you own reefers now, obviously you already know because of the temperature, the temperature controlled units that you got to have, the DOT regulations on those reefer units. So it is a little bit more trickier right off the bat. So yes, you can look at it as a niche, right? But again, what I would recommend to you, if you're a broker, if you're someone out there, contact these people and get to the farms, get to their locations, understand their cooler situations, look at their docks, understand the relationship, what you're getting yourself into because what a lot of people don't know is that you might have a family farm that they're pulling from that might not have a loading dock that you think that's gonna be what you think a, let's just go with a big branded company that everybody might know, right? You think of oranges, right? What do you think of when you go into the store and you, and you think of oranges? You might think of Sunkiss, right? Sure. Are you, or you think, you think of Indian little, River fruit here in Florida. Oh, oh, that's right, <laughs> Indian River. Or those little halos or those little cuties, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, So you think of that. that. That facility has 15 to 40 docks. Boom, boom, boom. Well, now you, call, you cold call Golden Star Citrus that has three docks. How, do, how is that trucker or broker ever going to know? There's no pictures on a website. There's none of that. And you're cold calling, and then you finally get the order, and then you show up, and there's three dot, and there's three trucks already lined up there with 20 trucks in the in the waiting yard next door. 
See, all of that has to do, those are nuances inside of trying to figure out, should I get into produce or not? Well, know it's food. Mm. Know that it could still be being packed as you go. And that is a lot of frustrations that we get out of new people that come into the industry. They're saying, no, I gotta charge you for hold times. I've been here for four to five hours. And we know that's a big thing within the trucking industry. We know it, but we also have food that needs to go out safely in a timely manner too. Mm. And that's where I always go back to, right? And so that's the big communication that a, that a lot of, I guess, produce shippers or aspiring produce shippers should be aware of if you're going to go into this market, if you're going to target that niche market. So it's a don't cold email, <laughs> don't cold call. Don't spam, <laughs> don't spam LinkedIn pages. I, I mean, I'll be real with you, everyone. Uh, I got hooked up with JGLC, so I went to a virtual event in 2020, and we went to a breakout room, and I met Maddie Fisher. Maddie Fisher was the marketing manager of JGLC, and literally, it went from a conversation of her asking questions to the group, and I was like, what does she do? Had nothing to do with trucking, but it made me think, what does she do? I'd come to realize later, she's talking marketing, and she's talking about, oh yeah, this type of fruit. I'm like, so who do you work for? And she's like, oh, a logistics company. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, we haul produce, we do this, we haul drive it, blah, blah. And I'm like, I would have never guessed that. So two, it was an organic two relationship. Two and a half years later, Maddie and I talk a few times a week. We're working on projects together. John Green Logistics is a fancy sponsor of the podcast. And now when we go to these events, it's like people are like, oh, I got to meet Maddie. I, you know, I hear she does great for the industry. I hear this. And now it's like people are reaching out to her now, right? Not just, not because of me, but like they see that authenticity. They see that it's not about shipping. It's about the overall thing. Uh, I would say the overall thing, the overall concept, which is we're shipping produce here. Every time you piece of, put a piece of food in your mouth, it really will make you happy. Very well said, very well said. Now, when you talk about relationship building, you're, you're using the podcast as sort of a mechanism to, to, I guess, strengthen a lot of those relationships because you, you mentioned the logistic sponsorship that comes onto your, into your podcast. How do you take a, how do you take a topic like produce and turn out several episodes all the time about it? How do you keep finding the topics to talk about? I love produce. I mean, if you listen to my podcast, I say one thing, um, try something new, right? So every year I don't have a new year's resolution, like stop biting my nails or, you know, all these weird ones that people, I'm going to go work out. No, not doing that either. And so for the last few years, I've had the concept of a new year's resolution of try something new. So in the concept of my podcast, if I take that into the concept of that and try something new, well, from A to Z, we have apples through zucchini. I'm pretty sure if I start and go down the list, I can find someone to have a conversation with me about some produce that I do not know about. And that's, it, one of your videos too was mangoes. It was a whole episode on just mangoes, eating the right way, peeling it the right way. Yeah. Is this the kind of topics that you explore like with different, I guess, because I think for... A person like me, I love produce. I love, you know, fresh fruit and things like that. I'm from Florida. But when I go to some of these, like, farmer's markets, I have no idea what half of the stuff is. Is that part of the exploration process for you? 100%. And I, I didn't know what a leche was until this year. And it was it was so funny because Dan, the produce man, we're, in, we're sitting in uh, in Tampa. And he, we go to Whole Foods and he buys these leches. And, and I'm like, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> 
And he's like, oh, Patrick, when I was, I used to own my store, these things look like little eyeballs. When you pop them out, I used to throw them on the floor and squirt ketchup. And I'm like, we're going to eat these? And he's like, yeah. So I try them. I did not like it. Okay. It happens, right? And I, you know, I said to myself, this is not for me, right? But I still tried it, right? Just like Rambutan. Uh, just like, like I said, lychee, just like star fruit, dragon fruit, all these things that I probably would have said no to before, I'm now exploring so that when I explore it, guess what? I can tell you 20 fun facts on how to eat and pick mangoes because I've now done it myself. And so th that's what you're using the basis of to determine what kind of content you're going to talk about in the future because you come from a citrus background, but maybe some of these other, you know, parts of produce is is that affecting, you know, I guess maybe the larger goal of what you're shipping as for you as a business owner or are you just going to stick with citrus and then use the podcast as sort of an educational journey? Yeah, so I will not sell other produce. <laughs> um, I love my citrus citrus and I love my citrus community and I've always, I'm always going to stick to that. The podcast is definitely to help grow the industry together. Um, now in the essence of time are more businesses coming near us because of the podcast a hundred percent, but I'm never one saying, Hey, we're utilizing the podcast to do this. If someone tells me no one says I would don't want to do citrus with you. I said, Hey, fantastic. If you're ever interested in the podcast, We'd love to talk to you about that as well. And we're a no hassle, no hard sell approach. And so when you're, you're talking to them about this, are you trying to, what other, I guess, benefits come out of the podcast and, and using the, the, I guess, as a jumping off point for conversation? Is it part of that relationship building that you mentioned earlier? So if you look at it like a trade show, right? If you have a booth, what's your goal? Draw people into your booth, right? So you look at the same concept. I take, uh, we have a trifecta approach is what I call it because we have three organizations. We've got a Golden Star Citrus, which I work for, right? Flavor Wave, which I'm partnered with, with Michael Chavez. And then the Produce Industry Podcast, which is an extension of the brand, right? So now if you look at that, I immediately go in and say, hey, we'd really like to talk to you about citrus, right? And they say, no, thank you. Hey, no problem. Do you have any ideas about tech and what you're going to do for your organization about tech? Because that's what Flavor Wave is. And then they say, no, we actually don't. Well, fantastic. Well, here's our podcast card. We'd love to talk to your organization, no matter what, about how you're doing great for the industry. You look at that trifecta approach, they're going to look at all three of those and go, wow, this guy's really out for the industry, not for himself. Let's figure out and at least have a conversation with them. And then we bring our team involved to have a marketing, a sales manager. And then it's not just about myself and the podcast. It's about how we grow the industry together. I keep saying that a lot. And that's what helps the growth. It sounds like there's a lot of synergy between marketing of the show and the actual like stuff that you're making, like tangible yeah, and items I, and, that you can eat in real life. And there's a lot of tangibles because we'll do videos for sponsors. We'll do audio, you know, uh, for sponsors, like actual building them audio content. We'll build them marketing. We'll help them with geo-targeting, geo-fencing when they're selling to certain retailers to actually drive awareness of that podcast. So we're not just saying, hey, your podcast is going to release next Monday and don't worry about it. No, we're going to say, all right, Golden Star, where's your product at? And they're going to say, well, we're in Tampa in all these zip codes. We're going to pull out advertisements through Facebook, Instagram, geo-target these exact zip codes, geo-target those exact grocery stores. And then anybody who goes into those grocery stores now knows, hey, when I walk in, bing, 
Oh, got to pick up my 10-4 pack of Flavor Wave oranges. And so when you're, cons- so it's not just you're just having these guests on your show. You're you're creating that marketing for them. I didn't know that that was another aspect of your business. Can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, I can in a little bit, and that's still part of my sponsorship. So um, I always say that's when you become a sponsor and you become a customer, right? Um, we're going to get you diving deep into things that you probably never did before. If you're a trucking company out there, a broker, um, listen. It's really interesting, and I'd love to tell you this in the shortest time span possible, but it's like, think about it like this. I was driving through Tampa the other day. My buddy starts talking about, hey, I really want to get back into the gym, right? And I'm like, you know what? Me too. And he's like, I don't do a gym, everybody, just letting you know. And he's like, no, I really want to get into this. And I'm two days later, I'm scrolling through my phone, and all these like karate gyms and jujitsu gyms and everything shows up. Man, I signed up for jujitsu. Me and my son, like we're in it now. We're, we're, we're on like, you know, four weeks of jujitsu. And that right there is what we do. I mean, so on another aspect, you're a sponsor. You're going to hear it. You're going to talk about it. You're going to go into a store. You're going to say, I need oranges. You're going to type oranges in your actual notes in your phone. I'm sorry to say, yes, there's tracking on like all of this. Sure. That's why it says allow to track, allow not to track, right? Um, so that again is part of that package where we're going to say, we're going to help build that. And then we have deliverables to go back and say, Hey, we're helping support you. This is how you can support us. And if you're a logistics carrier out there and you know, you're going to spend money on marketing, this is a good way to get in to people to help them expand their business as well. 100% because I mean, I feel like that is where supply chain really became the top of mind conversation for a lot of folks is really within that March 2020 to May when all of those conferences that you were thinking about attending, when they all went virtual, all of us had to move our communication strategy to our online. And that's where you saw a lot more supply chain and logistics podcasts starting to pop up, including yours, including several other within the industry. What do you think as far as like the growth of this industry? Because one of the things that I hear often is there's, I feel like there's too many people already that's doing supply chain and logistics and, and that anything, the intersectional of, of that, those two industries is too saturated already, even though there's not a category on Apple podcasts for supply chain at all. Um, people have said it feels oversaturated. What advice would you give to them? You got to keep it niche and you got to keep it relevant. I can tell you that, you know, I pulled the Gary V aspect. Um, when you look at competitors, I'm not focused on my competitors because they're irrelevant to me at the time. Um, and I say that with all respect to them as well, because I'm not worried about what you're doing because why? It's got to be relevant to the situation. If you're going to have a podcast within produce and you start talking about sports, get out of here. If you're going to have a logistics podcast and you're going to start talking about ten, uh, something else, right? Um, comic books, get out of here. You know, so those are things that I, that I look at, you know, we had a high profile guest on, um, our show. Uh, you might know him, Bo Jackson. And, um, we told, we made an agreement. There was no sports talk and it was great. It was one of the most authentic conversations of laughing and having a good time. And that's what it's about, right? So yeah. it's about relevance. So as all these people come up, they don't understand what to talk about, right? Because they might be doing it because, hey, I got to promote my uh, consulting business. Hey, everybody else is doing it. I'm going to bootstrap off of them and start selling sponsorships. I mean, there's so many ways that you can look at this. We have over 70 podcasts in the produce and supply chain industry now. Over 70. Wild. Meaning that we're making you choose who to listen to. I don't want you to have to choose. 
I want you to know what to go for for the right information that you need. So yeah, if you're thinking about starting a podcast and you only have seven episodes in your head, don't start it yet. Start when you have 40 episodes in your head. Think about consistency, think about clarity, and think about relevance in the industry. What about on the shipper's side of things? How do they prefer and how does your plan of communication really cater to what these shippers want to see? So we're going to answer that in three parts because we have a fascinating new study that just dropped from Logistics Marketing Advisors. It's one of the top episodes of Cyberly that we've ever produced when this study first came out just a couple of years ago. They do this study every two years. So to give you a little bit of perspective on what the data says in that study, I'm going to point to a couple of other articles first. Let's talk about perspective because HubSpot just released their state of inbound marketing trends report and it surveyed more than a thousand B2B and B2C customers. So HubSpot customers are answering this in their role of either B2C or B2B. And one of the really important takeaway stats that I saw here is that relatable content and authentic behind the scenes content, which BTS, that stands for behind the scenes content, are some of the lowest used content types, but it takes up two out of the three top spots for the most effective types of marketing. Now in that same study, video consumption is up, but there also aren't enough videos to keep up with the demand of how often people are scrolling different social media apps. They're watching video and so they want more, but the, de- the demand is high, but the value or, or the amount of videos that they're looking for just isn't there. So that was a really important stat that relatable content and authentic BTS content are some of the lowest used, but have the biggest sort of return on investment, the highest ROI as far as the marketing strategy that you could be implementing. So keep that stat in mind because the next perspective that I want to bring up is this Bloomberg article talking about the rise of the LinkedIn B2B influencer. And I'm going to say a quote from this article because it says LinkedIn has more than 144,000 members with creator as their job title as of December 2021. That is up 16% from the previous year. It's, you know, LinkedIn being more focused on helping creators share stories and engage with audience. And as of July, more than 11 million members have turned on creator mode, a program that LinkedIn started offering in March of 2021 that allows a member to be identified as a content producing authority with a particular expertise. That's really important. So if you are out there creating content and you're posting it to LinkedIn, you need to make sure that you go and you turn that option on on your profile because it opens up additional features that you can share different style or all of your different content. You can highlight the different content that you offer and or or that you're creating and it will profile it more prominently on your LinkedIn profile versus just the traditional profile. So make sure you turn that creator mode on. But that's really interesting that that many people, 11 million members have creator mode turned on and it's only continuing to grow. Now in that same article, there was a source that was quoted It's called Ogilvy... PR agency. And I know that I just butchered the pronunciation of that name, but forgive me. Um, it's a common occurrence with me. I'm sorry. Uh, but who this, this PR agency has a new B2B influencer package offering. And they were quoted in that Bloomberg article. So they go on to say the reasoning that they started up this B2B influencer focus for their agency is because of a few different stats. So first one, Forbes is showing a growing importance on business influencers. 90% of sales driven 
and B2B audiences no longer trust sales messages. But 92% of B2B buyers would engage if the professional is a known industry thought leader as what their data is showing. Now, in addition to that, 74% of B2B marketers agree that influencer marketing improves relationships with brands, but only 19% are running ongoing influencer campaigns. So there's an incredible amount for this type of content, but the agencies aren't really running with it yet outside of this agency who's being quoted in this article. And there's an incredible amount of demand and growth for it on this particular platform with LinkedIn. And then the final stat I'll give you is recent research by the research and markets experts estimates that the global B2B influencer marketing has the potential to generate 11 or close to 12 billion by the end of this year, the end of 2022. So this is a space when you think of traditional influencer marketing, maybe you think of Instagram, maybe you think of you know, beauty companies, makeup companies, and they're pitching those or different outfits. That's pretty common on Instagram. But the the ugly truth of that side of it is, is that most of those influencers are making sense on the dollar. I'm talking if you click on someone's profile because you really like their outfit and you go to wherever they, they bought that outfit, you're getting an average of 12 cents per sale. That is pennies. I mean, obviously it's pennies. But if you compare that to somebody who is really affluent in maybe supply chain manufacturing, um, some of these other industries that don't really have a typical influencer in it or hasn't had that, you know, as far as like the mass perception of a B2B influencer, but you're going to make significantly more if you are in the trenches of those industries and you know what software works, you know what functionality works, you know what systems work, and then you can be that consultant, you can be that creator in order to recommend those different platforms, which those platforms are very expensive. They're much more than say a, you know, a a container of foundation or not an entire container, but, you know, a bottle of foundation or, you know, an outfit that you bought off of Amazon, the commission rate that you're going to get for recommending a software product is significantly more than, you know, an Amazon outfit that you're going to recommend. So hence the rise of the LinkedIn B2B influencer. Now I say all of that because it's incredibly important to know what type of marketing strategies are finding the most value. And that is video, behind the scenes, authentic content, relatable content, educational content. Then we're talking about the lack of investment so far from the LinkedIn B2B influencer aspect. So there's a a growing demand for that type of influencer, and yet there aren't that many people doing it yet. So knowing both of those things, that brings us to the Logistics Marketing Advisor study, which there are there's a bunch of takeaway stats that I could give you. And with the first one that I want to sort of really point out is that over a thousand shippers, or over not a thousand, over a hundred shippers were surveyed, which is still a lot of a lot of shippers that were that were surveyed and the entire study is great. I, I'm gonna actually pull some of these stats in order to cover in future stories because I think that they deserve a really long term, you know, or are an in-depth um, than what I have, you know, sort of the, the time allotment for today. But there are a few things that, you know, especially considering how freight companies approach sales, there's really a lot of uh, opportunity within 
this space within this study in order to optimize your messaging of what's going out into the world and how you can make it more effective. And I think for, for a lot of companies, they really need to put their focus on a few different areas. And that's put a stronger focus on their owned media. So that owned media that you're creating in-house with your executive team, your subject matter experts, maybe your mid-level management. Um, maybe you have somebody that's in charge of social media within the company that's creating content around the office. Um, all of those things, that owned media that you're creating in-house is incredibly important. The next one is something that you want to keep in mind is that you're educating your audience over the long term. And then the last one is putting a focus on higher level sales reps, because that was one of the bigger frustrations in this logistics marketing survey is that, you know, you've done all of the right things. You've got a shipper to notice you. And then they come to your website. And first of all, they can't book a meeting with you because it's too complicated. But then when they do reach out to you, when they do pick up the phone and maybe call you, then they're getting an entry level salesperson and they're not getting someone. These are, you know, higher up executives that expect to speak to someone who is knowledgeable when instead they're getting the entry level salespeople that are answering the phones and they can't really answer the questions that they have on the phone or via email. And so they're resorted to, you know, bouncing around to different representatives. And by that time, the executive has wasted enough time already. They're just going to move on to the next person that they thought of in their list. So keeping those three tactics in mind, let's talk about a few takeaways. Because the first takeaway that I want to shine a light on is the importance of playing that long game because word of mouth still and always will be king. Let's put up that first, you know, sort of page nine from this study. And I have a link to the study in case you want to download it. Um, it's a PDF link in the show notes. Um, but word of mouth referral that acts as a personal brand using social media. This stat is incredible. If you're looking at the this image on the screen, you'll notice on the, the graphic on the far right, you will see that 23% are, are reaching out to a new carrier or a new broker because it was recommended by a colleague. Then that very next one is that that service provider has a reputation for the service or the product that they need. So 23% are recommended, are, are finding new carrier partners, new broker partners because of a recommendation from a colleague. So get those referrals in. Then that next step that, you know, we really want to put a strong focus on is that strong reputation for the service or product needed. So are you putting information out onto social media? Are you putting information out into the world that says, hey, I do X, Y, Z really Really, really well. I do it better than my competition. Are you answering those questions with your social media? Because even if the situation isn't right for you know maybe a current customer that you have, um, maybe they're you know you're trying to work with another customer, um, and so with that other customer, they're not interested right now, but they could refer you because of your specialty, because of what you're focusing on. So that was a really important takeaway. And I thought that was another, uh, on that same graphic, there was another part that I'm actually going to do a future show or a future uh, segment on. And it's only 10% of the surveyed shippers find a logistics partner through internet search. That is down 5% from 2020. And we're going to dive in deeper than that because I think that there's a lot of freight companies out here who are focusing heavily on SEO organic blogs, you know, things like that, you know, a couple thousand word articles, or maybe it's a thousand word article or 500. But there's a lot of freight companies out here who are focusing long term on SEO. And this study shows that shippers are less and less likely to use that form of, of internet discovery in order to find your company. So if you're investing a lot of time into SEO, you might want to rethink the distribution of your content marketing strategy because of what seems to be working and what these shippers actually prefer to be contacted. So it's referral, 
or being recommended, highly recommended and highly experienced within that particular service or that product. Now, the next one is the importance of building a content library specific to the customer you're trying to sell to. Now, that slide we just showed, it said the second most leading indicator was having a strong reputation. So are you showcasing that in your branding? Are you showcasing that on your social media profiles? You know, maybe you have some sales reps that are creating some LinkedIn messaging or some social media messaging. Are they talking about those specialties that your company specializes in? Do you have a niche? Or are you saying yes to everyone or all kinds of freight, which is very common. But from a marketing and branding perspective, you really want to take a chance to or, or take the opportunity to dive into your numbers to see what freight, what commodity, what lanes are you moving the best, better out of everything else that comparable to everything else that you're running, which ones are you running the best? Which ones are the most profitable? And then you can find some similarities and be able to showcase that on all of your digital profiles. Because remember, your website is the last part of that sales research. When somebody looks at your website, they decide if they're going to book a meeting with you or pick up the phone and call you, or they're going to move on to somebody else. You need to make sure that you handle messaging appropriately. And then the next step that I want to bring up is, do you have, speaking of the niches, do you have that niche or specialty clearly defined? Because in this screenshot that we're going to show you is from page five of the report, 77% of shippers want emails, not phone calls. I know you, the, the, the old way of doing things in this industry is really taking you know, a, a new broker and putting them down, or maybe they're fresh out of college and sitting them down at the phones and making them do 100 cold calls a day, and they're all calling cold leads. This, this survey right here, it's, very, it's, it's actually uh, this similar numbers as of what it was in 2020, but we still have a lot of brokerages out here that are making 100 phone calls a day and shippers are saying overwhelmingly, do not cold call me. They want emails, but they want emails that are specific to them. They don't want to feel like they have mass, you know, a mass amount of communication, that this is a mass email. You can kind of tell that pretty immediately if someone is emailing you directly or if they're emailing a bunch of people and just hoping to cast a wide net and you know catch you know a, a, a few fish at a time when if you were strategic about it then you would at least spend the 5 minutes in order to research a company before you reach out to them and before you cold email them. Because that was overwhelmingly what a lot of these shippers talked about in this survey is that if you're going to reach out to me, at least make sure you've done the bare minimum amount of research. Now that bonus step of, of you know, as we mark out our, our marketing plans and our strategy, especially from website to social to cold emailing. But another thing that you want to make sure that you do too is whoever you're reaching out to, connect with them on LinkedIn. Because in this same study, the, is, uh, the LinkedIn use of who is or how these shippers are interacting with social media, what platforms they're going to, an overwhelming majority of them now use LinkedIn at least once a week. That is up from the 20, from 2016, where it was about 50% of people. Now it's up to 78% of people are using LinkedIn at least once a week. So if you could just do the bare minimum and do five minutes of research on these companies, connect with them on LinkedIn, you know, post relevant content that you think that they would enjoy, you are light years ahead of your competition simply by doing 
those little things and being able to to share, you know, a, a, a message that is highly targeted to the people that you're trying to reach, that you're trying to email, that you're maybe cold calling at the same time. So if you're doing all of those things, at least make sure at the bare minimum, you connect with them on LinkedIn, you connect with them maybe on another social media app of their choice. And then that way you are sharing that consistent messaging. So even though they might not be in the buying cycle right now, we've talked about this before that 95% of people are not actively shopping a new provider, that only 5% ever are really actively shopping a new provider, but there's still tremendous amount of value and advertising to or marketing to that 95% of people who aren't ready to buy yet, especially if you have your targeted messaging down pat. Now, you know about all the data. We, we've talked about all of the different data points and how video is extremely important and being authentic and, and being, you know, showing the relatable side and the educational side of the role that you fulfill. And now you know that they, re- that shippers want emails. They don't want cold calls. 77% of them want emails and they want those emails to be targeted to them. So the next step and the most important step, you cannot mess this up. But once they talk about once you get your message out there, you need to make sure that you have some kind of way to convert that lead or convert that prospect into a a, a qualified lead. And and so that all happens on your website because guess what's going to happen? They're going to see your social media messaging over, you know, maybe six to eight months. Then they're finally going to be ready. It's going to take one day that one of their carriers maybe falls off or, or misses the load. And then that's one day that they are going to remember your company. They're going to come to Google your website. They're going to go to your website. And if there isn't an easy way for them to convert on your site, they're going to move on to the next person because they need their problem solved. And so you need to make sure that you have a way for them to convert. And then when that person is converting, make sure that they are connected with somebody who has a knowledge-based insight into what they're reaching out about. It's so much of a difference in how you approach a high-intent lead, somebody who is ready to buy, versus a cold lead who maybe downloaded an ebook who probably will never likely ever become a customer. Those quote unquote leads are completely different than somebody who has seen your social media messaging, who has seen your marketing and has maybe gotten a couple cold emails, but didn't respond. And when they're ready to convert, they're ready to convert and they're ready to talk to somebody who is knowledgeable because this quote directly pulled from one of the shippers says, make your company easily findable on the internet and have a detailed website that answers my questions. Then provide easy protocols to put me in touch with someone who actually knows what the heck they're talking about. Don't waste these people's time. And that is what the crux I think of all of this comes down to is that if you just follow their communication specifications and you you really go above and beyond as far as your content strategy and really fo- and when I say above and beyond I mean just creating educational content that fits within the niche that you're trying to reach one thing that we don't necessarily hear too often is in a public setting what a shipper wants from a 3PL. And so this popcorn manufacturer, they really, it, it's its a not a popcorn, yeah, a president over at Franklin's Popcorn. His name is Dave Strickland. He posted to Twitter late last week about what he wished he knew about working with 3PLs. Now let's run through, in case you're listening, let's run through a couple of these tweets because it was a thread full of insight and information that I think a lot of brokers will find extreme value in. And the first few tweets, he says he finished his first year with a 3PL. was an expensive process. And here are the things that he wished that he learned before going into the deal. That software matters a lot. 
Making sure there's no hiccups in the order flow is essential to sleeping well at night. Make sure they, the brokers, demo it and you talk to one another as well as your customers on the cart platform you're on. Now, you don't have to have alignment on say you don't have to have alignment on saving money as Dave continues, but he said when I told my warehouse team to get that container from X and bring it to Y, they knew my cost per unit and would be like, Dave, it's expensive if you do that. Let's rethink this. The 3PL just says no problem and they bill you whatever. So he's talking about his experience before using a 3PL where there were some cost conversations that were taking place whenever he had a a shipment that needed to get from X to Y. And so how a 3PL will just accept it, just they're worried about moving the freight from point A to point B. They're not necessarily worried about the business owner or the shipper's cost. So that was another thing that he wished that the 3PL would have communicated to them as he was working through this process process. And then he says, it leads me to point number three, how they bill you matters. Is someone in your org going to have that Excel spreadsheet, Sherlock Holmes, to figure out charges? How are you tracking all that? Can you see the charges in real time or are they just invoiced monthly? So these are all of the different concerns that he had after signing on to work with a 3PL. So From the perspective of using this insight that's rarely posted, especially to a platform like Twitter, where we don't really see this kind of insight directly from a shipper, I have a couple takeaways that I think that you guys will find valuable as you start building out your cold outreach or even your your regular outreach of the conversational points that you should be covering. And you should be covering not only ahead of the process before a deal is made, but after the deal has been made, that ongoing communication, which from reading between the lines of, of his tweets, that seemed like that was the biggest gap and failure is that once he sort of signed on the dotted line to work with 3PL, he kind of felt like he was just waiting in the wings and just ran charges would be popping up and he would have to factor in those charges after the fact, not before the fact. So let's talk about a few of those key takeaways. Growing shippers are used to running everything. I think that's kind of clear from that thread that he's used to running everything. You have to let them know what the entire process is up front of working with a 3PL. Even if you think they should know something, say it anyway. Let me make sure that that communication is actually is, is taking place instead of assuming that that shipper will know how this entire process works out, especially when it comes to billing, especially when it comes to tracking and visibility. And then let them know how the process works during a typical shipment or when, you know, stuff hits the fan. When stuff hits the fan, there's probably a, a different protocols that are taking place. They just want to know ahead of time because they're used to running everything. And so when they take that trust factor and they let someone else manage it, there's, you know, I could speak from like an entrepreneurial standpoint that you're used to running everything and you have to now trust somebody else that's going to do as good of a job, if not better than you will. So that establishing that trust factor is incredibly important. And it sounds like with at least Franklin's popcorn that this wasn't actually taking place and that this communication wasn't happening until after the fact of when he actually was asking, well, what the hell is going on with my shipment? And also what the hell is going on with all of this pricing? Being proactive, not just before the sale is complete or before that relationship is established with the new shipper, you should be communicating what happens during X, Y, and Z. And then also what happens during a crisis for X, Y, and Z, what the cost 
implications are from that. Um, all of those little minute details, because like I said, shippers are used to running everything. So you need, they need to be able to trust you that you are on top of it and that you're also communicating that to them. Now, business owners, my final takeaway, I'll give it to you is uh, business owners like Dave want to handle the logistics part of the business, but they realize they need to trust others in order to help them grow more. You are supposed to set them up and help them free up their time so they can focus on where they're the most valuable. And so by knowing all of these different intricacies of how the, the process and charges and, and, and all of the minute details that may, they may not know, they may not be aware of, this was a really interesting insight into what you can be proactive about communicating with them. And what does that do? That establishes trust and knowledge that you're an expert in this and that they can trust you even with stuff hits the fan, that they're not going to be raked over the coals with a lot of different, you know, uh, overages and, and, and charges that they don't necessarily uh, plan for because they don't know that it exists. So being able to communicate that, like I said, ahead of time, before, during, and after the process of getting the deal is complete, then if you're be- staying proactive and you're communicating what goes on, then you are doing much better than a lot of these 3PLs out here just by simply communicating your knowledge of what's going on in the industry. You're the COO of Calypso Lemonade, so so welcome in. Uh, give us a little bit of a background on on who you are, how you how you joined the company, all that good stuff. So it's uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, so it's almost painful to to say, but I've I've been in the food and beverage industry for over thirty years, um, so it's a mighty long time. Um, background, you know, mostly manufacturing operations, uh, contract manufacturing, procurement. Um, lots of big companies, PepsiCo, uh, Unilever, ConAgra Foods for, for most of my career. I joined Calypso about two and a half years ago, fourth quarter of uh, 19. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been a whirlwind ever since, you know, supporting a, a business that's growing at a rate of 50% a year plus. It's crazy too, because it, it, I didn't know that the brand has been around for this long. I I only recently I, I you know I I live in Jacksonville, Florida, so a, a beach is twenty minutes from me. Um, so I've I've had this drink plenty of times before, but I didn't know that the brand had been around for twenty years. Was it always under this brand, or is it just now starting to gain you know sort of national and international exposure? You know, so it, it's always been under the, the, the Calypso name, uh, since the beginning and it, you know, 21 years, like you said, started by the founder, sold out of the back of a truck to, to, to local companies. And over time, you know, through independent distributors has grown. Um, I would say the last four to five years that growth has accelerated, uh, as the owner exited and, uh, the business was bought by, uh, Mason Wells leadership team was put in place to grow the business. And, and, uh, you know, rebranded, or I wouldn't say rebrand, but improve the brand shelf presence, uh, you know, a lot of work by, by Matt, um, you know, on, you know, uh, online, uh, marketing, Hmm. great sales team, driving distribution and execution of field, excuse me, um, has really accelerated that growth over the last three years in particular. And so with, 
With the a juice company, typically I would think, I mean, I would just imagine, you know, I've traveled, you know, to the islands and things around, especially in the state of Florida, that you would have to live near a beach to make sort of a juice and a lemonade really good. How are you guys making a juice so good, but not necessarily being located near a beach? Well, it's not about the beach. It's it's about the ingredients. Um, so it's real lemon concentrate, you know, real lemon pulp. Lots of natural flavors, um, so you don't have to be on a beach to get those things to your bottling plant. Uh, you can you can do that right here in the Midwest uh, and uh, take that taste of the islands to the to the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't just have to be the location. The location helps. Being on a beach definitely helps with whatever you're drinking. It, it could be really just something subpar. Probably the environment is is benefiting that drink more than the actual drink. But this is actually a really good drink. So. Give me a little bit of insight onto the supply chain of of Calypso. Where are you guys, you know, getting your your fruit and your extracts and your and your pulp in order to make these? Um, you know, we we source, you know, worldwide. You nice. know, so lemon concentrate can come from California, uh, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Spain. Uh, lemon pulp, lime concentrate, lime pulp, um, all from those those same growing regions. Um, you know, we tend to, to focus on on South America. Um, it's a high quality product, um, lots of availability uh, and a lot of consistency. So but it's a worldwide supply chain, you know, from a from a standpoint of particularly the concentrates and pulp. I, I love the the South American angle because when I, I had visited Peru once and it was the best juice that I've ever had in my life. And they talked about how, you know, the different fruit, it's juicier there because of the higher altitude. And there's not that many places in the world that has, you know, high altitude, fertile lands in order to grow those those kinds of products. So I, I if you're sourcing from South America, that's definitely why I think it tastes better than anybody else, because it is I think it's just a completely different growing environment. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's only specific agricultural regions that that'll support citrus growth, hmm. um, you know, particularly lemons. And, uh, you know, those are are a few in, in our primary sources. Now, on the bottle itself, you, you mentioned earlier about how you you took it through a rebrand. You took the product itself through a rebrand and and changed a little bit of the label. Um, I believe it was also the the taste of the islands was added to the labeling as well. What all went into sort of that process of of trying to come up with what should be on a new label? Do it, it, were you involved in that process? Um, you know, I'm more. I will say I'm more on the execution side. So I take those ideas from, you know, David, Matt and Bridget and, and take it to, uh, to real life. But, you know, I know Matt, you know, who heads up our marketing team and, and manages the brand, you know, tremendous amount of consumer research, mm. um, you know, goes into that, um, you know, the, the, the labeling upgrade, you know, more about shelf presence and making it, you know, that it pop off the shelf. Um, you know, a lot goes into, you know, the flavor development, the color, um, all those things, you know, make it attractive, you know, to the consumer on the shelf. And then the guy like me then picks it up from there and, uh, you know, turns it into a real product that, that we sell and get on a shelf for consumers. And so there, there was also another interview um, that I had heard, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but they said that that Calypso has seen so much growth through innovation and iteration. Could you give us a few examples of, of how Calypso has, you know, sort of innovated and iterated its product, especially over the last 20 years, to the extreme amount of growth that it's seen recently? 
Um, you know, so flavor profiles, um, you know, the, the launch of Island Wave um, using multiple flavors, mango, papaya, along with lemonade, um, the light, you know, business in terms of obviously there's always, there's always demand for a lighter product when you're a sugar-based product. Um, so, you know, lots of development work in terms of that flavor profile. What are the right ingredients to use? Um, to even, you know, the decision on whether you call it light uh, or zero, you know, so again, all research-based, um, you know, lots of different tries to, to get to what you think is, is the best product for the consumer. A lot of review by our management team and board um, to ultimately get to that, that final product that we launch. And then we watch closely in terms of how it performs, what our consumer response is, um, to give us some feedback in terms of how it's doing. And of course, the sales um, that helps. You know, they tell the story, right? In terms right. of how it actually does on the shelf. And so when, when, as far as the sales are concerned, um, in that same interview, you, you, you talked a little bit about how it Calypso competes with teas as well. In addition to, to being sort of a standalone lemonade category, you were regional first, and then you started distributing nationally. How does, what, goes on into the decision-making process when you decide to take a product from regional distribution to national distribution? You know, I, I think obviously the, the performance, you know, on a limited scale, you know, we get a lot of feedback from our distributors who know the markets, uh, you know, very well. Um, that performance then, you know, translates to discussions we have with a, a broader group um, of those distributors across the country. Um, their desire to support it, you know, that's that's a primary driver. You know, we're launching teas. A lot of that is driven by our customer base asking for it, you know, feeling that our brand can carry into that that category and, and needing uh, a, a strong player. Um, so using that kind of insight, you know, how are you guys making those those supply chain, those transportation decisions? Um, are you using distributors mainly oh. or are you using three, you know, three PLs? Or are you using any other kind of, of, of data points in order to measure where that demand is going to come from or even anticipate where that demand might go? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question because we wouldn't be able to scale like we've had without a a good bit of 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 planning and, and collaboration with our leadership team, with the sales team, and the distributors. So, you know, we've in the last two years we've started an SNOP process. Um, we forecast on a distributor level, on a flavor level. Um, we project. So, I do a lot of modeling in terms mm -hmm. against projected growth rates to understand. Okay, what is the supply chain? Do we need is in manufacturing capacity? Uh, warehousing, transportation, obviously that drives material supply. Um, so yes, we, we, we do. I mean, that is something that, that we actively do every month and we're projecting 18 months out. So we know what levers we got to pull from a supply side in order to support uh, the growth of this business, because it, we we've grown 50% a year for the last three years. So we've significantly scaled a supply chain that that started out as as one plant uh, running one shift a day with 25 people um, to a supply chain that has a plant that runs 24 hours a day with 125 people plus three contract manufacturers, a 3PL and a 4PL that helps us manage our transportation. So 
all of that has been driven by, you know, near and long-term planning, um, you know, to manage that scale up. And how are you, I, I guess, approaching? I mean, it, it feels like everybody's supply chain and transportation plan has been thrown out the window over the last couple of years so with all the, the influx and, you know, difficulties trying to even get supplies. Um, in, in that interview I was referencing, you, the, re, the way that you guys alleviated a lot of those supply chain challenges was by focusing on the component of the component. Are you able yeah. to speak a little bit on, on that strategy? Yeah, I mean it, it's it goes back to that modeling starts with that forecast and you know it works its way all the way through to how much sugar do you need, how many bottles, caps, trays, uh, flavor kits, and components. Um, so uh, I, I think the key thing is is that forecast that that we've leveraged and what I would call you know supplier collaboration or relationship management. So you know through the last couple of years with there's two challenges, right? It's the 50% growth. And then you layer on top of that, a pandemic, you know, that is driven, you know, supply shortages because of people, you know, uh, the availability of materials, et cetera. Um, so that long lead time and then collaborating with our suppliers very closely in terms of helping them understand our growth. So they're not surprised, um, really trying to get into the detail of understanding what their challenges are and where they may have pinch points. And I'll give you an example. Um, our trace supplier, like everybody else, high, high demand challenges with people. In our, com- our regular conversations, they came to us and said, hey, you know what? We're really constrained with supply. Um, we'd love to get you into some of our other plants, but we need some help with, with adjusting some of the specs of your tray to make those plants capable. So we made that change. It had no impact on, you know, the product quality, the consumer, the supply chain at all, but it opened us up to to three different plants where they could produce our product for us. But we would have never gotten to that if we weren't on a regular basis talking about how our demand's changing, what our needs are, what we're doing in the plant, where how we're scaling to third parties across the country. You'd never get to that without that regular conversation. So that's that's been a, a huge focus on it's what's gotten us through this hmm. um, along with changes in inventory strategy. So, you know, you have high demand, there's risk in their supply chains, there's risk in transportation. So in some cases we've taken new inventory positions to make sure that we're covered in case there's supply chain disruptions. And then probably the last piece, not on a broad scale, but where we can and where it's appropriate, you know, we've started dual sourcing. You know where we've added additional suppliers. We've split, we split our supply. It's not always the most cost-effective, you know, approach, but it'll keep you in business in terms of having materials. True, because there, are, it, there's been a few instances, especially with a, a couple retailers that I saw on on TikTok that are just they, they get your product in store and then they just freak out and it flies off the shelf. Flies off the shelf. So is that a? Are you guys? I guess more focusing on the the national distribution plan versus the international, or is there an international strategy in addition to the national strategy? Yeah, it is international. Um, and there's there's two things. Um there's two things about that with the product flying off the shelf. So um year and a half ago, we changed our strategy from a make-to-order, you know, business where we received orders, we made the product and shipped it to a make-to-stock. 
And that's where we expand the plant. We run 24 hours a day. We run the same year round. We build inventory into our warehouse. So we're now shipping from inventory instead of shipping from an order, right? So that provides a lot more flexibility in terms of handling demand spikes from our customers, getting us through the summer season. Adding co-manufacturers to make our product in the U.S. is expanding that capacity and, and enabling that to happen. But additionally, internationally, we are starting up a co-manufacturer in Europe to support that business. That business has been growing almost at the same rate that our U.S. business has. And in a lot of ways, we've constrained it over the past couple of years as things have gotten tight. Um, you have to try to manage all your customer base, and they probably haven't gotten all the product that they want. So now with manufacturing in Europe, you know, real time, you've eliminated lead time. We've added that additional capacity. We have warehousing to build inventory. So now we're going to unconstrain that business, you know, moving forward. So I'm really excited to see, you know, just how much it grows when it has unconstrained supply. Especially because, I mean, just one video alone on TikTok, it had like 56,000 likes for this just one woman. She's trying the, you know, the the, the blue lemonade uh, Calypso drink, and she just loves it. She said it flew off the shelf um, within 24 hours. So I think it's just fascinating how you get, I mean, it's a good problem to have, but at the same time, you still need to manage, you know, how you're going to get more product into that store. And and speaking of, you know, sort of the, the managing the deliveries of the product, you, you mentioned that you work with 3PLs, you work with 4PLs. Now, I, I did a story recently on this popcorn manufacturer or this, you know, popcorn company that was talking about all of the things that they wish they knew that before they started working with the 3PL. And they mentioned that managing the communications was the most important thing to them because they were so used to managing it all that when they outsourced it to a 3PL, they were really frustrated when they weren't getting the, the, the real time communications. As, as a, a customer yourself, as a shipper yourself, how are you, what are your preferences when it comes to working with a 3PL? Do you want constant communication or do you just want to know that they're handling it? You know, it, it's, I think it it's dependent upon the situation. So uh, when we launched our 3PL, the warehousing side of the business, um, you know, we have stayed, you, we stayed very close. I mean, there's, there constant communication, um, regular meetings every day, understanding the status of inventory, status of shipments, um, you know, following through just to make sure that they they understand, you know, what the load plan is. Um, I think once you get that relationship and you get that those lines of communication established, you get systems integrated, and you know that they're functioning properly. Um, you don't need to to manage it, you know, minute by minute or day by day. It, it turns into more. Uh, a week to week, month to month. And then when things change, so we're always scaling up. So we recently with that same 3PL moved from a smaller site to a larger one. A lot went into the scope, you know, the understanding of how our business is growing, how that's going to change the demand on their organization, um, how transportation is going to flow. So you kind of move back into that high touch to make sure that's understood, the proper plans are in place, those plans are being executed against, and then you're following the results as you go. So it, you know, ultimately, you know, you, you want to work to get to the point where it's necessary communication, you can understand how the business is performing, you have the right touch points, 
but at the same time, you know, you've brought them in to manage a part of your business for you and, and part, and you don't want to be managing it for them. So, but it takes time, you know, you start in one place and let the, let the, the results of the integration and the performance kind of dictate how you manage moving forward. Yeah. Cause it really, it's almost like a partnership rather than just outsourcing it and trying to get it off your plate. Whereas, you know, when it's a problem with deliveries, it becomes everybody's problem it, if you can't get your product in the store. It is. And and so the, you know, our 3PL and our 4PL, which is more the, the transportation management, they are an extension. They are our company. So my 4PL is my, my transportation department. My 3PL is my warehouse hmm. and it's my team. You know, it's, they're tied to our KPIs and, and our objectives. And I view them as an extension of our organization. And I think they view us the same way that they are part of, of King Juice and Calypso and a key part, you know, of our growth. For, for folks who don't know, can you explain sort of, I guess, the, the hierarchy of, of King Juice versus Calypso? Is, is Calypso more of the, the I guess, well-known brand? Is, is that yeah. a be- better way to put it? Yeah. So King Juice is actually the, the name of the company, right? So that started first as a co-manufacturer, then okay. the owner developed the Calypso brand. And then we, you know, the rest is history. So King Juice is the company. Calypso Lemonade is our is our brand. Gotcha. I wasn't sure if maybe Calypso was the the top tier brand, and then the you know the everybody else falls under the umbrella. Uh, but thank you for clearing that up. Now, now yeah. as far as your 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 transportation, I guess forecasting is concerned, which I think that's probably everybody who is in lo- some sort of logistics right now. That's a love hate relationship with that <laughs> word. So, yeah. how are you managing you know future capacity and and future transportation constraints? Um, we just had a couple ports that were shut down over. In, in China that might not affect your, your business, but it does affect other areas of the supply chain, which ultimately affects us as, as well. How are you planning for the future without, you know, all of these uncertainties in place? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it goes back to that forecast, right? And we, we, you know, we drive that forecast to how that's changing our transportation needs, both in total but you know what parts of the country that we're growing in, um, so that's an element, right? To to prepare our partners to support us. But that whole complexity that you know you mentioned, you know what's happening in China. Well, what's happening in China, you know, influences containers that come into the United States and the timing of what in the volume of that, which then influences congestion in ports and the railroads. So all of that influences my ability to get product to my customer. So it is all related, but the the whole strategy of going with a 4PL. So historically we manage transportation internally. So I would run a bid, you know, and I had uh, a small group that would tender loads and just manage the day-to-day through brokers. What we've realized is one, our growth and two, this complexity, you know, associated with transportation, all the constraints we realized that that we didn't have the right resources, people-wise, the right skills, the right management systems in a TMS, or the the reach into the transportation market to really manage transportation effectively, so it it, it can enable growth instead of disable. So moving to a four PL was all about 
enhancing our capability to be able to deal with this complexity. Because what I get is a company that is, you know, people that resources way more than I had assigned to me. They're, they're logistics experts. They're experts in execution. They're experts in procurement. They're experts in network analysis. Um, they have their experts in systems. So I bring that capability to my organization. I get to leverage their TMS system. And then they have the reach to get to way more carriers than I would ever be able to touch and the capability to manage the complexity associated with different regions, different modes, changing dynamics at the ports and in the rail yards to keep our product moving. So that 4PL solution is, is our response to a market that is more difficult than I've ever seen in my 30 years. And I'm not sure if it's going to change, you know, that quickly. Yeah. Cause I mean, for, for better or worse, we're in a, you know, a global economy where everybody is just dependent on everybody else. And that can always uh, lead to some unforeseen issues. And, and as you're talking about forecasting and planning out, and, and as we sort of close out this conversation, what advice would you give to, to other companies that are facing similar issues with their supply chain, with, you know, getting goods delivered on time and, and, and regularly, what advice would you give to them? I think, uh, you know, it starts with your company's capability, I think, in, in really assessing, like we did, are we really in a position to be successful given the circumstances, which, you know, the growth of your business, the complexity of your business, and what is happening in the market? Um, to me, that's that's number one. Are you really in a position to be successful managing in a situation that we are today. Um, if you don't get that right, you know, it doesn't matter what strategy you have, what partners you have. If you don't have the right capability in place, that's where I'd start is, is you got to challenge yourself around that. We decided we want to focus on being very good manufacturers, marketers, um, developers of this product you know, and my supply chain's geared around that, good buyers of raw materials, you know, good managers of suppliers. I'm not going to be a great warehousing company and I'm not going to be a good transportation management company. That's where I get to bring those partners in that have that expertise. So my whole supply chain functions effectively and enables growth. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Everything is Logistics, a podcast by Digital Dispatch, where we help your company build a better website. And speaking of my company, I founded it back in 2018, but we recently streamlined our website services plans. So if you want to check out how we can help you and your marketing team build a better website and connect those ROI goals, then go visit digitaldispatch.io. You can also check out past episodes of this show and every show by hitting up the resources page on digitaldispatch.io or on everythingislogistics.com. I do some freelance content projects for select clients. And if you liked this show, then you might like some of the other content projects that I've worked on, like Cyberly, Maritime Means, and more. But until next time, I'm Blake Brumleave, and I will see you real soon. Go Jags!